You are now tuned into the Hip Hop Learners Podcast, a place for conversations on hip hop literature, both scholarly as well as academic. Today's guest is a little bit different. Today's guest is Dave Nelson, also known as Emotions. As an artist, he's been an integral part of the Vancouver hip hop community for decades at this point, both with his group Fourth World Occupants in the 1990s and early 2000s, as well as his solo career, which spans right up until today. From working alongside Macklemore, to being signed to DreamWorks as a recording artist, to battling in King of the Dot, and touring around the globe, Emotions has stories for days. Thankfully, Dave decided to compile these stories into a book, aptly named Field Trips. Not only does this further identify what it means to be a hip-hop artist in Canada, but it highlights for those a fan of the artist a unique autobiographical account of his journeys. I was fortunate enough to have received an early draft of the book, which should be published sometime hopefully in the coming year. The book itself serves as a coffee table book with photographs from his personal archives, flyers, and the like. I quite enjoyed the read, and I think listeners of this podcast will as well. And though I've spoken to Dave numerous times in the past, it was an absolute joy to walk through some of the takeaways from this book with the author. That said, please welcome to the show, Dave Nelson, aka Emotions. First off, man, congratulations on on the book. I, I know it's a challenge to to write any kind of book, and to write something that you feel comfortable enough sharing with people is is a challenge in of itself. So, so congratulations on the success there. Thank you. Yeah, I want to. Uh, there, obviously, there's a lot to kind of uncover here, but there's kind of a thesis statement that you ended up putting out kind of early on in the book, within the first few pages anyways. And you say, quote, uh, my aim of this book is to give you a glimpse into some of the most kind of impactful moments, people, stories, performances, and experiences of my musical journey. Um, I think that kind of sums up the, the book. Obviously, there's a lot to, to expand on. The conversation's not done there. But um, but why, why now and, and why write this book? I feel like uh, with, you know, the tough, tough 2020 with COVID and everything, it was the first year in 20 years that I, I didn't tour full time. So I, di- I didn't travel. Well, I, I did travel around BC a lot still. I mean, throughout the quarantine or whatever, just uh, driving to nature and stuff. But it was my first year I actually couldn't tour. And it really um, let me relive a lot of these experiences and and go back through everything. And I had kept diaries and, and little memoirs and stuff like that. So it was just taking some of my old writing and photos and actually carving them out into the stories that uh, I kind of never had the downtime to write. You know, I would write them on the road, but never thought of doing a book because I was always just kept doing the next tour, next album, or next music video or, you know, things like that. Yeah. So when that became limited, it, um, yeah, I guess opened my mind up to, to do some different platforms. And what about this format? So the for those listening at home, the book is kind of set up as a coffee table book, lots of photos. It's autobiographical, but at the same time, it's it's a rather unique style of autobiography, right? It's not your typical autobiography. It's it's done as almost a collection of, yeah, little glimpses into memories that you kind of cherish. And by doing so, over the collection of those memories, you kind of get an idea of who you are. And I, get, I think furthermore, you get an idea of the kind of underground Canadian rapper and what that life is like, especially those that are touring and especially those that are touring internationally. Um, but why, why did you settle on this format? Because I I do think it's unique and I think there's other ways that you could do it. And you're probably more familiar with the more kind of traditional ways. Yeah, I, I, I think it just felt natural. And actually some chapters are written from kind of different perspectives, like the ones, uh, the Asia chapters, there's a Southeast Asia chapter. Um, 
describing my three three of my different trips from when I've gone out there. Yeah, that's and almost like a journal, right? I wrote in, I, yeah, those I wrote in Asia while I was there. So the, those are more like it's an actual diary entry, and it's a, I would say a lot more in the moment descriptive um, than certain stories that are more like recollections, and I'm telling them as good as I can, but I di- I wasn't telling them in the moment. Yeah, fair enough. So that was a, um, some some stories um, really felt more natural to to tell like wh- what I could remember and piece it together and not try to jazz it up or add extra stuff. You know, so if they were older memories, some of them aren't as articulate because I, I don't remember what the air smelled like that certain day or I don't remember what store we were standing in front of or, you know what I mean, small details like that, opposed to when, when I was writing in the moment. I'm like, hey, I'm sitting in front of this this colored store that is called this with the, so it's a lot more descriptive in that sense. Yeah, um, and then some chapters, you know, I, I wanted some chapters just started being a little more reflective and kind of, um, you know, showing emotional sides or, or something deeper would come out and I would go, Oh, okay. Uh, this, this is natural. And that was part of the memory. So I, I want to include this. So some chapters end up being deeper than others. Um, some, don't really have like a, a meaning like at the end of the chapter you might not be like oh that was like the lesson learned from chapter six or whatever but some of them kind of do and it ends like oh okay i i see the conclusion he came to or i i get the, the point of that chapter so i just wanted to keep that natural as well you know sometimes i've gone on trips or journeys and there was no like definitive answer or like thing that i got at the end it was just like whoa that was crazy this is how it was and then it took me a while to process that and just, yeah, keep it, keep it moving. Yeah, I think that process that you're describing, I think that fits the, the format itself as well, right? So um, it, we can kind of set aside some of the the more kind of journalistic kind of chapters or journal entry-esque uh, chapters. But the, the ones that are kind of from further back memories anyway um, – there's there's often a lot there, so you'll end up covering like a large period of time. You'll cover one international tour, or you'll cover a series of events that kind of happen, say in your battle days, for example. Uh, you have a chapter on that, um, and these moments are kind of glossed over. But it works as a coffee table book because it really ends up being the the photos being the focus, and then you have a short little description. Um, in one sense, it leads the the reader wanting more, right? There's there's countless stories in here that I, I was wishing that we would end up getting like a, a a full kind of detailed, um, more like novel-esque kind of chapter um, on those individual stories. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it works as this coffee table book, and that's almost the 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 medium that I think it works best in. Um, and especially if you were restricted in, in terms of some of this writing, just not remembering a lot of these details, right? Um, so whenever you end up having, for example, there's there's one of those stories, and it's it's told in a couple sentences, but it's, it's that um, danger you're on a shooting range sign that was on the top of the hill right that's a that's a fantastic story yeah. it was it was hilarious i loved it um but it's told in a few sentences and then it kind of ended up moving on and that's okay because it it works for that format um but i guess what i'm saying is i with the process that you described i see that that format kind of made sense for the the book itself was there ever a an, um kind of a, a thinking process of how you ended up wanting to to put out this book and was there was there ever a thought to do it differently? Um, yes. I, I, 
I actually, at first, you know, I, I was thinking if I should tell a more, I guess, personal or personal or emotional journey through some of the hardships that I've been through and like my detailed personal life of just each year or what I was thinking or what my family might've been going through or things like that. Yeah. And it, it, as I started kind of piecing together the thoughts, you know, I, I said, no, nah, I want to make this more about my musical journey, not my emotional journey, you know? So, and, and that was really cool seeing the, the stories just kind of come together and it become a hip hop book that didn't really need that. You know, I've had a lot of, um, you know, suicide per se. I, I've known about probably 14 or 15 people in my life that have committed suicide. Yeah. So it's a, it's a very dark topic. I've lost family members, uh, really close friends, you know, business partners, all sorts of stuff like that. Um, maybe that's for a different book. It's not that I won't talk about it or I don't want to, but as far as like, wow, this experience with my music has been awesome. Like that just wasn't a part of it, you know? Maybe maybe kind of those sad parts of life are some of the reasons why I've enjoyed the, the positive parts and the happy and the joyful parts of the journey. So as I started writing, I was like, wow, there's not, you know, the things I'm wanting to write about aren't really some of the dark, messed up things that I thought I might have put in a book that I'm going through, like, you know, suicides from people close to me or family shit or whatever. Um yeah, and it just kind of brought out all these really cool, funny, quirky stories. And some people, you know, get writing help and, and also kind of like drag on, uh, like, like you said about that story on the driving range, right? I yeah. thought that as well, that it was really funny. But I just really, there's only so much I remember about it. And it was kind of a small descriptive thing, right? And I could turn it into a big thing, but then it's kind of like, uh, you know, I don't know, stretch, stretching the story a bit. Or, or, or adding things that I don't know if are factual. Yeah, fair enough. So it was cool. I felt like I, I, I dived into certain chapters and stuff. I felt very confident. And I have video footage of the whole thing of what I was doing every day and then photos as well. So a lot to look back on and go, oh, yeah, the next day, then we did that. Oh, yeah, and then that night we did that. So it was a lot. And then some of it is just, you know, a memory from 20 years ago that's, that's hilarious and I don't I don't want to let it go, so... Yeah, then the ones that you were writing in kind of a real time, they work a little bit differently as chapters. Not only is the, the perspective a little bit different, but the length of the chapters are a little bit longer. And it kind of also works as a coffee table style book because you're there at the time and you know that you're writing this thing. So you've, you, you seem to have taken more pictures. You seem to document things a little bit more clearly because of that. Um, so whereas you may only end up having like one flyer from an elevated element show that you were at or participated in um when you're in yeah. southeast asia and you're you're purposely writing this book and you know that you're writing this book you're you're more cognitively aware you're taking more photos you're um oh man this is going to be a cool thing for the book so you take a photo and then you end up kind of having an idea of what you're going to write about that specific photo right um so i think in in both ways it, it works as that coffee style their coffee table style book but um but they are approached from different perspectives nice thank you yeah it's definitely meant to be you know some uh stories will, will be more photo driven so it'll be like say on a two-page coffee table book one page is all is like a whole picture on the one side and then maybe even a half page picture on the other and then just a small story 
So, you know, the smaller stories will be more photo driven, but then as the deeper ones, you know, some of them maybe will only have a small photo and a couple pages of writing. Yeah. So I think those will balance each, each other out. And yeah, even with when I was in Southeast Asia, I wasn't writing it as a book. I was kind of just journaling to myself, but I was consciously journaling, like you said. So I was, hey, that looks cool. I'm going to take a picture of the fruit stand or, you know, I, I was getting more things not even thinking book, but just thinking that I want to capture my journey. And then at the end of it, I went, wow, that was a really crazy journey. And I wrote the whole time about it and, and snap pictures. You know, yeah. I should do something with this kind of thing. Yeah. Even the, to kind of bring it back to that conversation in regards to whether or not you wanted this book to end up being this kind of intimate emotional journey, or you wanted it to be more of a celebratory musical journey. Um, I think when I finished reading the book, I think I ended up getting kind of a healthy balance of both. I, I understand the, the direction that you ended up going, and I, I totally understand that it could have ended up going much darker, much more intimate, much more personal in that regard. Um, but at the same time, there are little kind of nodes to what you were going through, your character, how you yeah. learned as a as an individual, right? Um, things like in the battle chapter, you kind of close off the chapter with this sentiment about homophobia and hip hop and your own experiences dealing with homophobia and how to kind of conquer that. Um, you have chapters that um, maybe not are the sole focus, but they they bring up kind of fam uh, familial relationships, like um, the starting chapter where you end up going over kind of your your father and his band and Paola's and how that was kind of, um, I don't know, how that impacted you anyhow. Um, or even um, Danny and Lizzie and your your twin sisters and how they ended up impacting you and they show up numerous times within the contents of the book. Um, I found... I. I I found that I kind of understood who you were a lot more than just speaking to you even through our interviews. And we kind of do lifestyle interviews when I've interviewed, uh, interviewed you for my project, for my book. Um, cool. I still feel like I, I walked away knowing you on a, uh, on a more personal level, even though those subjects were, were raised in our conversations previously. They, that element of personality and, intimacy i think did end up coming across even if it was in a different way than you could have ended up going that's great thank you yeah i um i wanted to kind of talk about how i end up um i guess coming across canadian hip-hop in in general so whenever i end up doing my project um I generally end up finding that because I, okay, so for those listening at home, I'm working on a project documenting the, the history of Canadian hip hop. And whenever I end up doing so, I've kind of found that we've, I generally, whenever I speak to people, there's this misunderstanding that their history is not important or, or not, um, not worthy of documentation. And because of that, they haven't kept their own records. And it's usually a surprise that I'm even reaching out to them to begin with, right? These are local artists from Manitoba or from Vancouver. And for the most part, yeah. they're, they're not this, these big kind of mainstream celebratory artists, right? They're in most cases, they've moved on. They've done other stuff. In your case, you haven't necessarily moved on. You, you still kept music as part of your life. Um, but at the same time, there is this kind of notion that 
what you have done in your past, especially in terms of hip hop culture, is not something that's that's worthy of value and not something worthy of documentation. I wanted to kind of touch on this a little bit because you are from this community that I'm studying, and you've clearly seen value in of it yourself um, enough in order to document it as a book. Um, I guess there's a few questions to kind of ask here, but. I guess it still boils down to, to how did you end up seeing your story as, as valuable and who is your intended audience for this book? Because I think that will kind of answer that question a little bit as well. Well, for one thing, for the I, I guess I'm kind of still figuring out the audience for this book, but I think anyone who loves music stories and anyone who loves kind of uh, adventurous travel stories would be into the book. Um, especially hip hop heads and stuff like that. But the same way that I'm not into rock and roll particularly, but I love reading rock books and autobiographies and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I, I think people from different genres would enjoy the story. And it's, and even within, you know, like you were saying, a lot of people don't feel like their story is ever going to be told or worth being told or something. I've always felt like my story is really unique and nobody else is, is walking in my shoes, you know, and is wow. And I've always wanted to kind of tell it on a grand scale, even showing some of the chapters of my life to my closest friends. They're like, you know, there's certain things that they didn't know that they're like, Oh, that happened in Europe or, Oh, that happened in LA. I, I didn't know that little piece there or whatever. And these are some of the closest people to me. So I can't expect the world to know a, a lot of my particulars of my own story. And I just think, you know, at, since a young age, I felt like I described in the book as well. I felt like I was around something really special with the people I was around, the 20604 movement, fourth world with elevated elements and kind of like our surrounding crew. I knew one of us, you know, per se would be a Macklemore, right? I didn't know yeah. it would be him, you know, but I was looking around at like, oh my God, I'm around the craziest, most creative, motivated, um, unique uh, artists right now and everybody is just like 11 out of 10 fucking on one everybody's recording and writing every day and so inspired and everything and I just knew it was going to pop into some shit so I mean I, I always cherished my pictures I had of my friends in the moment you know in those years my walls would be full of pictures of all my homies and our graffiti and stuff like that and I just always kept it all and I always kept the footage and I always you know, really appreciated it. Certain things, you know, with documentation and art, it's kind of like amulets. You know, you could have, uh, you know, if somebody's brother died with, you know, two quarters in their hand and they, and they wear that on a necklace to one person, it might just be two, two quarters in a, in a hemp necklace. But to them, it might mean the world, you know? So I think art is kind of the same too. Um, and I always felt that like with our early flyers that I have every single one to like our early songs and cassettes that we used to sell and all that. I was always like, wow, this is so special to me. It's it's more valuable to me than like the first run DMC tape or the first whatever. You know what I mean? Because that's like the shit to me. It's my, my people. So, yeah, I kind of always had that 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 feeling and wanted to document it. But not just for the sake of documenting. Like I, I love documenting hip hop and 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 keeping everything and that I can. But 
I, I did it for the sense that I just genuinely really enjoyed it. Yeah, there's a great book by by an author named Dick Hebbage. He ended up writing this book, I, I want to say in the late 70s, maybe 77, 78 or so. It was called Subculture, The Meaning of Style. Um, and in it, he has a chapter, and, and essentially the whole book is this kind of portraiture of the, the punk rock scene and different um, different kind of countercultural youth movements that happened around um, kind of the, the 1970s, 1960s, in and around um, Britain. And one of the things that he really took note of is this idea that he calls bricolage, um, which I guess originally stems from um, a sociologist named um, Claude Levi-Strauss. Um, however, in this book, in this kind of chapter where he's talking about this idea of bricolage, it's almost exactly like you said, where different he noticed that different cultures let's say the punk rock community for example would end up taking different um different symbols different signs so in in the chapter that he he writes he kind of focuses on this paperclip and to everyone else this paperclip just is a paperclip it doesn't really mean much um but the punk rock community and the culture with the punk rock community was able to um i guess prescribe different meaning to that paperclip and turn it into something its own. And then by doing so, they're able to, um, I guess, create meaning out of ordinary things, but also create a culture by doing so. And I think that ends up translating very well when you look at hip hop and how kind of the, the hip hop community has, has taken a lot of these ideas and, and made them into their own. So when other people end up seeing them, they don't really understand the significance of something. But when you look at it through the lens of a hip hop head or somebody that's just within this community, they, they recognize a value with it. And yeah, I think by doing so, by understanding that kind of that meaning or that translation in a way, I think you end up kind of unpacking the the meaning of what that culture really is. And I think this book actually does a, a pretty significant job, a pretty a pretty good job at at highlighting how the communities really existed at that period of time and the communities that you were a part of. Um, just the the qualities of that of that culture. Um, one of the things that I've noticed in in my writing and in my research is this kind of this aspect of the DIY culture within many underground hip hop communities across Canada. Um, but how the the ingenuity that really comes from that and that's something that you end up seeing here as well you you see you see that all over the place you see that when you're talking about some of the criminal behavior that that happened back in the day in terms of just little things like how you would end up taking a spray can and go into the store and swap out the lids so you can end up getting the cheaper spray <laughs> can that's again another hilarious story that i wish was expanded more but but you get this idea of just how how yeah in I guess the ingenuity involved in the, in the youth culture at that period of time, they would do whatever it takes in order to make their art in order to, to make something of themselves in order to participate in this culture. And by doing so, and by everyone doing so, you end up getting this culture that's, that's extremely expressive, extremely unique, um, experimental because they are coming up with new and creative ways in order to, to make this work. Um, something even like the prevail battle that you end up describing, which by the way, I've, I've interviewed plenty of people that have detailed prevail experiences and many of them, happened to be battles back in the day and i i gotta say the story that you that you tell in terms of the prevail battle is is amazing um so again for those listening at home actually maybe i'll let you tell us so what was the uh what was the kind of experience there at the prevail battle um that you that you detail in the book can you tell that story for people listening at home yeah well 
in the book, it details kind of three battles that legendary battles that Prevail had with a, a crew called 108. Yeah. Um, and so it started off, you know, in my in my neighborhood, and he came to my height. Prev, we had become friends with Prev. He was a little bit older, and he would kind of like put us up on freestyle stuff and come rhyme at, at our school after school and stuff like that. And he ended up battling them there, and it was broken oh, up by police. Another sorry, sorry to interrupt here, but um, Prevail, by the way, is is from Swollen Members. So if you guys are familiar with Swollen Members, that's where Prevail comes from. Um, I, I just realized that I guess most people aren't going to know who Prevail is. Yeah, my bad. Yeah, so so Prevail at that time, I I don't even think Swollen Members had started. Um, he was in Q Continuum and. Um, a group with Kiprios and a group with Mocha as well, kind of yeah. like, you know, smaller rap crews. It was right at the beginning of when Swollen was starting, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so he was getting, he was battling these guys and basically had a couple battles that kept getting broken up. And then the legendary one happened at a place here in the forest called the Bog. So it was about, you know, 50 people on each side. It was in the middle of a forest on this little wooden bridge. And uh, it was just a legendary battle. It, it went for about an hour. And in the, in the story in the book, I didn't even go into this, but it also got broken up by police and conservation officers. And then we went to another part of the forest to actually end it all. But yeah, it was just this crazy battle saga that we had a, with this crew called 108. It started with Prev, and then it kind of turned into Fourth World's beef with them as well. So we battled a few times, and then um, we did a song battle on the radio here. So we made battle songs about each other and then met up at the uh, CITR radio station to play the songs about each other and people could call and vote in. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a long going saga, but um, I, I was really glad to touch on it in the book. And uh, a lot of people don't know that because it was an early story. You know, the battle started yeah. in like 97. Yeah, it's fantastic. I never oh heard God. about the radio, um, the radio battle at all. Um, this is the first time hearing about that there. But um, but even the technique though that Prevail ended up using in the battle was was extremely, um, again, just the the ingenuity that that is required in order to come up with some of these techniques. So what Prevail would end up yeah, doing? Yeah, so is I describe, guess to, to describe yeah. to describe that one technique that I was saying in the book is the best battle technique that I've ever seen. He he had battled him. Uh, Prev had battled this one guy named John Rex three times, three or four times already, and they were long, drawn out battles. They were like you know hour or two kind of thing. Um, and he just really knew his style and how he rhymed by then. The guy rapped at a pretty slow kind of pace with punchlines, you know. So he was thinking out his next thing. So it wasn't like really fast and sporadic. And Prev just figured out how he did it. So at one point, he just started predicting every word he was going to say and saying it at the same time as him while doing all his mannerisms, facial reactions, body language, everything. And it pretty much just deaded the battle, you know. Um, and I'll show you I'll show you footage of that sometime. I have footage of it, and it's amazing. That's absolutely incredible. Like I said, I've heard plenty of Prevail stories, and they all end up showcasing his his just crazy skill at battling and his freestyle abilities. Um, and they all go at great lengths in order to to showcase just the level of skill that Prevail ended up having back in the day, um, and still has today. But um, but yeah, that was that was one of the most, as you said, it, it just kind just, of incredible you know, like, battle techniques I've ever heard. 
yeah, and he was so far ahead. Like he used to he used to freestyle with us and just go, you know, give me a book, and he would open a book and just start rhyming about whatever word or topic he saw, but yeah. like on a crazy, amazing level, you know. Uh, when people in Vancouver were just starting to figure out how to rap, this guy was already spending time in San Diego and L.A. rapping with AC Alone and some of the Project Glodians and Hieroglyphics and really heavy hitters, you know. So he was well yeah. advanced on a lot of people here. You you mentioned Project Load a few times within the book, um, and Project Load's a, a personal fascination of mine. I, I love the idea of the Good Life Cafe and what that kind of represented for that community. I love the music that was produced from the Project Load scene. Um, and almost all the artists are, are my cup of tea. That's if I'm listening to music just on my own, that's generally the music that I'm going to gravitate towards the most. Um, you, in the book, you detail that you spend a considerable amount of time with Fish from Project Bloat, um, and that you had done a numerous shows and you recorded a bunch of material. What happened with a lot of that material? Because I'm not, I'm not familiar with that surfacing. Um, I mean, a lot of it was kind of sprinkled throughout his album. So I'd say majority of that content ended up coming out throughout three or four of his albums, uh, like his solo albums. And we we talked about doing a project and putting it out together, but kind of like, you know, we each time he was putting out a project, we just decided to put another three or four songs on him. Gotcha. Yeah. So that Fair was, enough. you know, that was I, I always really looked up to them and uh, was a big inspiration for me. And I, I didn't. I didn't say this in the book either, but one day I was, I, I got it. When I got that call from fish, my friend didn't know it was him. Like, so somebody just called and said, yo, it's fish. Is emotions there? And they said, <laughs> my friend thought it was a, pr- a prank call. So he almost hung up. And then I heard them in the other room and I was like, yo, let me talk. Let me talk to them. Who is that fish? And I grabbed the phone and he's like, yo, what's up? It's fish. So like, it almost didn't happen. Oh, wow. He called me out of the blue. So that was the yeah. first time you ever talked to him? Yeah, he he had heard my music and, and he really liked it. And he hit me up and just said, hey, let's, I said, oh, you like, he was like, I'm really feeling your shit. I said, oh, you want to do a song? He said, man, let's do like a project or let's do a lot of songs. So we kind of just started banging them out from there. And I drove out to California and stayed with him for a week out in Fresno. And then, you know, really got to know him and, um, got to hear some crazy stories about, you know, early blow days and yeah, everything out there. Do you still work so with him crazy. at all? And, and before I ever linked with fish, I had been, I already knew Ab and AC and I'd traveled with them a bit yeah. and toured with Ab, but, um, but I never knew any of CBE. Fair enough. Have you still worked with, or do you still work with fish in, in any kind of capacity? Yeah, he actually uh, recently asked me to get on his new project. So probably for 2021, I think I'll, I'll be on his new album as well. That's awesome. Yeah, there's yeah. there's so many moments like that that are kind of littered throughout the book. And again, you want you want more from it, but at the same time, it's just so rich in detail um, and in, in different stories, right? Um, and I think they all end up doing a, a pretty good job at identifying certain aspects of the community and of the culture that we that you kind of live in. Um, we, we touched on the, the, uh, the idea of ingenuity. One of the other things that kind of comes up is this idea of hospitality um, and just the, the level of hospitality that, that different communities um, kind of 
have for one another, right? So, and that's that's the case you see when you're traveling um, domestically. So whenever you go to places like Calgary, for example, and you meet up with a lot of the guys that were from like Side Road Records and just the level of, again, hospitality that they end up showing you. Um, and the, the sense of you guys are all kind of connected in one sort of community. And that extends whenever you end up traveling internationally as well. Some of my favorite stories in the book involve you just traveling around Southeast Asia and in locating some hip hop fans and and you being able to relate to one another just because of the music or just because of the culture. Um, I found those moments very, very powerful. But that's that's an idea that I think is often left out when people talk about hip hop and hip hop history. Um, they often focus on record sales. They'll focus on A&Rs and how a Tribe Called Quest ended up forming or how a Tribe Called Quest ended up breaking up or these kind of big, larger moments. But I think they forget a lot of the heart that the community really has. And I, I feel like that idea of hospitality is is really ingrained in in the stories of this book in, in many many different ways um i was wondering right. if this is something that you you intentionally kind of sought out to to put down on paper or if this is something that you kind of internalized even at all um just among your travels i've always known it's an underlying theme and but i didn't put it in consciously i just kind of was was just writing you know but i knew it was in there um I've had a thousand hip hop heads stay on my couch and I've probably stayed on a thousand couches myself, you know? Um, so it, that's been a, a great reward of hip hop for me is traveling the world and always feeling like there's a worldwide family. When I get places, whether it's, you know, I get to Mexico and I meet a B-boy crew and we're all like automatically just peoples, you know, or I'm in, you know, Southeast Asia and I'm beatboxing out there or whatever it is, it's this common language that we all relate to. And that kind of comes with hospitality. It comes yeah. with, ah, okay, you're one of my people. Let me show you some cool nature spots. Let me show you good food and how we eat out here. Let, let me show you what a good party out here is. Let me introduce you to some, some good people. Those kind of things is, is what I've always loved doing for people here in, in Vancouver where I live. But, and I definitely received it everywhere that I've ever traveled. So I, I always have it in, in return, you know, and it's kind of like uh, unspoken for me anyway. Um, an unspoken rule of hip hop is that we're putting each other up and it's a universal fam and we're just trying to help each other out when, when we're in the different regions, you know? Yeah. It's really interesting because even in the contents of the book itself, um, I feel like choices are made rather deliberately, right? So for example, one of the things that you, I, I think you pretty much can't help but notice is is the lack of really beef or disputes, right? It's not a negative book at all. It's it's a very, very positive book. Um, and I'm sure a lot of these stories had a lot of disagreements, a lot of hostility kind of involved within them, but you choose to leave that out of the book um, almost to an amazing extent, right? There's one story about how you ended up traveling um, domestically. You were, you were on tour within Canada, and I think the car ends up breaking down or something rather or another um, within the prairies, and you guys end up hitchhiking to Toronto. Um, that's a intense story there's a there's obviously a lot of heat stress and whatnot that are going on within those moments but you walk away sure. reading that chapter not thinking of oh my god that was like a shit show he ended up having like all this drama or there was all this negativity you walk away still thinking it was a very positive experience um and i think it's moments like that or choices like that that 
go to to show the the positive aspects of the culture right because ultimately i take away from this book when i read it not just an autobiography on yourself and who you are but really uh, who the community is and what the community is and the aspects and qualities of that community and by by choosing to to leave out things like the beef or the the hostility or the negativity in general you you focus on specific elements of the culture that i think are are very good i guess to focus on um i i thought that was interesting i guess can you speak on on some of your choices there in terms of portraying the the book as a whole as a rather positive experience rather than focusing on a lot of the kind of drama because i feel like for readers that's generally something that kind of entices people right they, they almost feed on the drama mm-hmm. so to, to deliberately choose not to focus on that and i don't know if you did deliberately choose to, to focus it in this way but it but it sure feels like that when you read it yeah i i, I just naturally like the beginning of the book says wanted to talk about impactful moments special people and stories of my musical journeys yeah and a, a lot of beefs and drama and shit like that hasn't been a great part of my musical journey it's actually been an annoying part of it Fair you know enough. what i mean yeah so that's not like something that i really wanted to capture in this book anyways you know i'm sure i will write about other stuff like that at certain points but for this one I, it's just not what i wanted to write about i've me myself i, I always have been the the musical dude um i was never a drug dealer and i was never a violent person so a lot of the dramas or beefs in my life was like people that I knew having big problems or being around the wrong people and shit like that. You know, I had, you know, qualms and beefs myself, but mostly rap related and, and not violence. You know, it was mostly just really hyped up like in hip hop beefs and stuff that I would go through. And I talk about some of those in the book and those kind of have turned out being hip hop beefs to me have, have turned out being a positive thing because I, I hold no grudges to anybody that I used to battle with and stuff. And like, even the ones who like pissed me off in the moment or did whatever, like I'm really grateful to have that. Cause I don't know if the next generation of people now will have that, you know, as we got older and things got more beefy and when people had problems, it was like solved with violence or, you know, whatever, or, or just in different negative ways or shit talk or, it was kind of cool to have problems with people and just meet up in a park and deal with it and then just gap up after and go your own way. Yeah. I want yeah. to talk about and true... I think that's kind of that, that element's kind of lost in, in hip hop. Yeah. I want to talk about tour life specifically and kind of how it bridges into that conversation. But um, are, are you familiar with, with chaps from, from Saskatoon? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, so yeah, Chaps, uh, for those listening at home, Chaps is a DJ from Saskatoon. He was part of the Beacomers crew in the, the kind of mid nineties, um, has been a staple part of both Sideward Records and Close Source Records and is a really important part of the Saskatoon scene. Um, through the years, he's uh, been a radio DJ and, uh, recently over the last couple years, anyhow, he ended up starting this podcast called the Third Verse Extra podcast where he interviews different Canadian artists and kind of tells their stories. One of the common themes that they end up addressing is just the group kind of intensity and the 
really we can see the negativity involved in Canadian touring. Um, specifically, as you end up going through the prairies, you're going through Manitoba, you're going through these really, really cold and desolate landscapes. Um, these are... <laughs> yeah. These are like hard terrains in order to travel and um, shit happens when you're when you're on tour. Right. Um, one of the things that I found fascinating, not just with yourself, but I, I find a lot of people within the community is they go through these crazy experiences that for most people, I think they would absolutely hate. Like if I were to bring my fiance on a trip like that, um, I don't think she would ever go on tour again. But not only do you guys go on tour again, but you guys celebrate it and then for people like yourself, you write books about how great these things were. Um, but uh, mm-hmm. for for most people, these are these are pretty fucking horrible experiences. Um, well, I, I, one one thing is that not everyone in the car has always did it again. You know what I'm saying? Almost every enough. major trip that I've gone on that was crazy, there's one or two people in the car that are like, "Never again," and they were, <laughs> they were serious. Sure. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, some people, you know, it, some people it hits you as like while I'm on the wrong path or for me, you know, I've always never questioned music or the arts. If I have yeah. had a bad trip or a bad tour or a challenging adventure kind of thing, I've always been like, wow, we did that trip wrong. Or like, you know what I mean? Like I, I, I would just be thinking of doing the next trip better or in a different way rather than thinking of just quitting. Yeah. Do you feel that that's a mentality that you have to have as an artist? Because of course there's there's touring artists and then there's people that deliberately choose not to tour. But I think even still, um, even for those that choose not to tour, I think a lot of those same aspects end up coming across, right? You put out an album, people don't like it, and you still have to convince yourself to to do another one, right? Um, there's there's mm-hmm. going to be bad experiences being an artist, but you have to kind of push through. And I think that's probably more so the case in a, in a field like being an artist um, than, say, a nine-to-five job at a uh, at almost any other location because the the level of consistency is just not there with with being an artist, right? You're you're naturally going to end up having to go up those hills and, and down those hills pretty regularly. Whereas in a stable job, you're you're almost repeating the same thing from day in and day out. You you kind of fall sure. into a routine, but that routine is almost never there as an artist. For sure. Um, I, I don't think. I mean, traveling is, is for a certain type of artists, even within artists, you know? Yeah. There's people who have great careers that don't tour that much and just make money on Spotify or YouTube or sponsorships or record deals and publishing, licensing, lot, lots of other, like, at-home kind of ways. So it's kind of just preference, right? For me, I've always, you know, I get healing myself and, and great enjoyment out of traveling. So per- personally, I love doing it and keep it going for that. And then, you know, there's the money side of things. And then also the, the what my music is meant for. My music is meant for connection, connecting people and for healing and for figuring out ideas together and that interaction. And that's just better for, for me personally in person. So I, I like to be there, you know, as much as I can, whether it's on the other side of the world or a show down the street. Um, and that hasn't really changed. But the drive of like, if I was doing it for other reasons, if I was doing it like for say just for money or if I was doing it for just for notoriety, I would have quit a long time ago, you know, because I, I think like you need other things in your drive. 
Yeah, just the idea that you have to embrace change, right? So you're not able to to stay stagnant and you have to end up um, adapting to to new environments as an artist. And I feel like that's a, it's a very unique job. There's not very many other jobs that are, that are like that. Um, And not only does it end up creating all these great networks and you get these, um, you get these relationships that are built, you get these stories that end up coming with it that are great for a book like this. Um, but just in of itself, I, I feel like it, it requires a very specific character beyond just the, the creative aspect. Cause I think most people focus on the creative aspect. So if you, if you think of somebody and you say, Oh, I mean, you should be an artist. They're, they're usually recalling specific elements of, of their personality, the fact that maybe they're a good drawer or they, they have the ability in order to, uh, to come up with, with new ideas. But that's, that's only one small aspect of what it takes to be a successful artist. There's, there's a whole set of, um, what you're comfortable with that I think needs to be addressed in those conversations. And I feel like in most cases, they're not being addressed. Yeah, no. It- for sure. And it's a, like you said, it's a very unique path, Yeah, you know, so everyone has their own way to carve that out. I've, I've been grateful to kind of realize how many different jobs and, and um, kind of ways to go within rap and within songwriting and music that there is, you know, so like some of those ones I just said, like publishing or licensing, songwriting for other artists, performance, merch, um, you know, writing all or all sorts of things that you can do within your within your songs so yeah. if, you, if you just sit around and just try to make money per se or success through one revenue stream it might dry up and then you're done um but if you have if you're lucrative and you have different things on the go and you're paying attention to what's going on and you can stay moving with it then yeah it is crazy but you can you can keep it moving you know yeah there's a there's a large aspect of the book that we're kind of leaving out here, which is the the photographs um, being a, a table kind of a table book, a coffee table book. Um, the photographs are an obviously large kind of prominent display. They're an important part of the book itself. And I feel like we we should dedicate some time in this conversation to talk about some of those photographs, not necessarily one by oh. one, but just the idea of them. Um a lot of the photographs, especially early on, so we, I guess we've already a little bit talked about some of the, the later, more journal entry style ones, and you're taking them kind of in, in real time, um, and that makes a little bit more sense. You're taking photos of the environment, your scenery, and what you're experiencing. Um, but the photos that you had to kind of end up going back on, I feel like those end up being, in many cases, um, really important kind of documentation for the Canadian hip hop scene as a whole. Some of the flyers that you include are, are really amazing flyers. As someone that studies Canadian hip hop, these are, are gold mines of information. Um, how did you end up acquiring a lot of these photos? Did they end up coming from your personal collection or? Yeah. So these are all from my personal collection. Um, a lot of them not taken by me. Uh, they're taken by different photographers like throughout time. My friend Tristan Ziegler has some great ones in there. Uh, my friend Joe Nardi has some amazing ones in there. Dave Jackson, my cousin, has some great ones in there. Um, but, yeah, the, the flyers and a lot of the photos I've always had, I still have crazy photo albums of printed photos from back in the day. And all the flyers I always documented and kept in, like, you know, journals and, and really well in uh, photo albums and stuff like that as well. So it's been cool. Like I, I just kind of have everything on deck. And also I, 
I took photojournalism for a while at Langara here. So it's always been an art that I love too. It's kind of writing around photography. And gotcha. I think you can capture a lot, capture a lot with a photo. And that's kind of wanna, why I wanted to do it in this format is, you know, give, for some people, they're so visual. You know, some people don't even listen to music. They just listen to music videos because they want that visual stimulation, you know. So I think um, I, I know multiple people who don't really read. And it's hard for them to get through one, a book. Yeah. So I think this book might keep them <laughs> entertained enough with photos that it makes them kind of want to read. Hey, what's the story behind this one? What are the words saying with this photo? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was going to ask why you ended up um, keeping a lot of those records as a just as a kid and as you're experiencing a lot of this stuff, right? Keeping a photo album and intentionally documenting a lot of this stuff is, is something that most people don't end up doing, um, especially especially I think within hip hop, um, considering hip hop has this kind of masculine tone to it um, and these masculine kind of conceptions that are that are pot, uh, brought onto it. Um, I think journaling in a lot of ways i think um keeping photo albums i think these are things that a lot of people think of as unmanly right um i wanted to to talk about that that, that um that photograph journalism course that you ended up taking how did that end up affecting this book do you think it affected this book in any way probably you know i've never really thought about that but it probably did um when i took that course i had i learned how to develop black and white photos and got unlimited film. Um, and at the time, I was living a, a block away from Hastings in Maine. So I was taking pictures every day of Hastings in Maine and kind of like putting them all out and just writing out different feelings and different stories. And yeah, I, I had a few things, uh, you know, kind of like news stories that I would write with different photos. And so maybe that style has correlated years later into tying in like the photos with the writing. In my hip-hop workshops that I teach, I teach documentation and photography and videography as elements of hip-hop. As the seventh element, I, I call it behind the scenes, which is, you know, promoters, managers, documentation, photographers, videographers, all those things that keep hip-hop afloat that are, don't necessarily have an element to them, but they yeah. really are the gel of hip-hop culture. When you were when you were a kid, and a lot of this book takes place when you're a teenager, early twenties, uh, especially the earlier chapters, um, did you see a lot of people that were doing this with you in terms of a lot of the documentation, or did you see that you were kind of alone within that? Because I've talked to people now, and I, I know people like Degree and whatnot have these expansive collections, but oftentimes I don't know whether or not um, those expansive collections were acquired later or they were something that were kind of done in real time. Mm -hmm. I understand for some, uh, if they end up recording like a piece of music, for example, they're going to keep a, a demo tape for themselves. Um, and then they'll end up distributing a few other copies to, to other people. So I understand having some personal collections within the community, but there are some people that clearly have, um, have taken it upon themselves to, to really be that kind of documentarian, that historian within their community. Did you see that there were a lot of other people within your peer group at the times um, that were, that were caring about the documentation kind of part of it? Not so much. Um, I saw other people that really inspired me, but out of my peer group, I kind of knew in that moment, Hey, nobody's like, you know, putting all this in a file cabinet the same as I am. 
Gotcha. And, and like really saving every flyer, really saving every album cover of everybody's mixtapes and trying to get each, you know, piece of thing that was put out or whatever, or taking posters down each concert and putting it away in my knapsack or whatever. I could tell there was no one like in my immediate peer group who was doing that. But there's, you know, it's kind of, I guess, the same as like uh, shoe collectors. Now the sneakers are like really popular. There's people who can just come in with money and just buy all the classic shit. Yeah, but you know there was always those people who were collecting it, and they just kind of got it over the years. So there, there was always those kind of people. Like I remember going to. Have you heard of Take Five before? Um, I've definitely heard that name before, but I can't put a name to to what he, it is. He's an amazing. He's an amazing DJ and graffiti writer legend from Vancouver. Gotcha. Um, he. Sorry, fuck. What was I just? Was he in oh, Visual yeah. Orgasm? He had a he had a crazy like when I went to his place as a kid he had painted all these trains and then had a North American map on his wall with all these pins and numbers all over the map and I was like what are all these pins and he was That's like oh go? in this photo up in this photo album here here's all my graffiti pieces and I call like the CN and the and the train hotlines and I can tell where the trains are so I'll put the pin where my train is and I can tell other writers like this piece is going to be in Chicago tomorrow or whatever. And it was just That's so amazing. intricate. Yeah, I was just like, what the fuck? I like, <laughs> can't even remember where I tagged the week before, you know? Like, So there was always people kind of documenting and taking it really serious. Kilo C was very inspirational. Um, he always had an insane record collection and kind of would drop some gems on us as kids too. And DJ Science as well. So yeah, there were some people that were collecting in the moment, you know? DJ Moves has always been a collector. He has a great tape and, and vinyl collection and, and I'm, sure, I'm sure flyers and stuff too. So I know yeah, I've been people, to, but yeah, I've yeah. always kind of noticed that some people don't take it serious as like an element or just something that they give a shit about. These little relics, um, the Commodore Ballroom here in Vancouver, which just recently I think had their 91st or 92nd birthday. Um, my dad and the Paolas played with the Ramones there in 1984. And they recently found the uh, poster in their attic and they framed it and gave it to my dad for Christmas. So just oh, things like sweet. that. Like, yeah. Just like little relics like that, you know, yeah. just that's a poster that of a gig you played with another band that later in life might be really special to you. And you're like, Oh, that's so cool. You know, I, I always thought that about our early gigs and I still think of all my shows. Now I was counting up until 2,500 a year or two ago, all every performance that I ever did. And then a after 2,500, I was kind of like, I'm really sick of doc like counting. <laughs> so I let it go. But it, it, that was, I only know one other person, that D.O. in Toronto, shout out to D.O. And he's done more gigs than me. He's crazy, bad man. Um, who's, who's been on it counting like that, you know? So <laughs> there's certain kind of nerd documentation shit that, I've always done just for me because I like it. Yeah. Yeah, I know, like, uh, for example, Ricky Jay in, in Vancouver, he's been very articulate in, in terms of, um, and just, yeah, meticulous in terms of keeping record of all the shows that he goes to as a fan. Um, and he has, I, I think he has books of, of just all the shows that he's been to. And I think he's at almost 5,000. Who's, who's that, sorry? That's Ricky Jay. He's just a, oh, a fan yeah, within a the. Lot of shows. 
Yeah, he goes to them all the time, right? And he, but he keeps record of, of every show that he goes to. And I'm not sure what detail that is. I'm not sure if he's keeping ticket slips or he's taking photographs. I know he takes a lot of photos. Um, but, uh, maybe he's just writing down a, a list of the shows. But either way, he's also kind of keeping track. And it's, yeah, just, I guess, different personalities within the community that end up showcasing this, this element. And I've seen a lot of those personal collections as well. You mentioned DJ Moves, and I go up to his, uh, went up to his house a couple times, I think, as of now. Um, but he only lives, he lives in Truro, so not very far away from where I'm at in, in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. And, um, yeah, his, his collection is insane. Uh, not only the tapes yeah, and the right. records, but, but just everything that he has. He has all of his old plaques, which I guess is something that you would want to keep. Um, but nevertheless, it's just the the amount of detail that certain people have have really taken it upon themselves in order to keep is fascinating. And even someone like Moves has, has lost a lot of it over time. Um, and it, I don't necessarily think the the value was necessarily um, something that that Moves recognized when he was keeping a lot of this stuff. It was more just for his own personal collection. He wanted to take he wanted to, to keep things that he was one a fan of and then two things that he was a part of. Um I, I don't know if he ended up really recognizing the kind of the historical value to a mixtape that some kid hands him on the street on a random like Thursday evening or whatever. Um probably mm-hmm. not. But over time, I feel like a lot of that historical value becomes recognized by these artists, right? Um, when they're able to flip through their collection 20 years down the line, 10 years down the line, even 15 years down the line, and see that they're, they have a fair amount of stuff that just other people don't have, or that doesn't have, it's not noted online anywhere, or just more obscure type of stuff and there's there's clearly some value there and of course a price tag also works as well right something like discogs ends up helping to to put value on a lot of these um a lot of these artists kind of profiles right um i am often as a collector myself and in doing this project i'm often buying things but a lot of the times when i speak to people like i spoke to spade from citizen kane uh I don't know, maybe two years ago. Citizen Kane is a Toronto rap group, and over the most recent mm-hmm. years, their album Deliverance, um, it was released on CD. Um, I believe it was released on um, Down to Earth or Treehouse Records or one of those kind of major Toronto um, indie rap labels anyhow. But um, it goes for like $600, $700 online Canadian. And just being able to... And for them, to, as an artist, talking to Spade and him seeing that his record goes for that much online, I think that prescribes value in a lot of ways, um, as it's kind of a, a monetary value that's that's very visible and very concrete. Um, but I, I, I found that that is probably one of the most challenging aspects of my project, is just convincing people of the value and being able to communicate what is of value and what's maybe not so much of value. And I kind of lean on the side of almost everything is kind of valuable. Um, any kind of story from the past is something that, that should be written down, should be documented in some way. Um, try to keep his records as, as much possible detail as possible because we never know when we're going to need that um, in order to kind of tell a story or to be able to, to fill in gaps of our knowledge later down the line. But, um, but that idea of trying to figure out what's valuable, I think is, is a really, a really important question. 
and something that I that I wrestle with all the time. And I think a book like this really kind of places itself within the center of that conversation because you are going through this process yourself and trying to figure out what I have to end up documenting um, and looking at your own your own documentation of what you've acquired over the years, like your photographs, and being able to kind of place them within that conversation. Um, you, uh, you mentioned that some of these photos are not captured by yourself and there's other photographers. I'm just kind of curious how you ended up obtaining a lot of these originally. Was this something that you ended up making clear within the kind of crews that you ended up rolling with that if people took photos, then you would like them? Or is this something that you went back a little bit later down the road and and acquired or a lot of them would just be handing like one of us just choose to take a flick when say there's six of us hanging out. One of us has to take the pic. Gotcha. So your you know, camera, you know I mean? but other so people one of are us taking would them. choose not to be in it. So a lot of the photos I've chose are kind of ones that I'm in. Um, so it, it'd usually be like my man, Conor or Joe, or, you know, one of my right hand men kind of dudes that gotcha. took the flicks or, you know, but I'd say majority, majority of the pictures in the, in the book are, are my own. And then about maybe 40, 30, 40% are other people's. Gotcha. Um, yeah, who are all who are all really excited because <laughs> they never thought those photos would ever see the light of day, kind of thing. You know? A lot of them yeah. I've, I've kept off of Facebook and things like that, off of social media, and they're gems. Um, just in the, in the thought of like, hey, I, I I rather use it for something cool and exclusive, you know, than just yeah. kind of put it out with nothing for no directives or anything. So they are really excited as well to uh, for these stories to be told and for the pictures to be seen. Yeah, there's a chapter in the book early on. Um, I forget the title of the chapter, but it's on the Naps crew anyways. And I feel like for a lot of people that end up reading this, and again, I'm not sure the audience of, of who you're exactly marketing this towards. I assume it's going to be a lot of your personal fans um, and a lot of people that have kind of followed your career over the time. Over time. Um, but I feel like for general audiences, this chapter is going to stick out particularly well because of a character that you already mentioned earlier in the interview, but but that's Macklemore. Um, and I don't want to dwell too heavily on your relationship with Macklemore because I, I think this book is a celebration of more than that. But nevertheless, I think that's an important kind of gripping point for the book itself. Um, and I think it has more historical significance in the fact that it really, this chapter specifically, helps kind of contextualize the connection between the Seattle and the Vancouver hip-hop scene. Um, I, I think that that's an important connection. I've spoken to a lot of people from both as of now, and I see that connection play itself out in real time. And I feel like that's probably a connection that exists outside of hip-hop as well. So for any kind of music scene, just due to proximity and geography, you're going to end up seeing a relationship between those communities anyhow. But within the hip-hop community, I feel like that actually brings out some kind of significant characters like Fourth World Occupants, like the Naps crew, and like what you guys kind of had with Elevated Elements, for example. Um, can you detail your relationship with kind of Seattle and how you ended up meeting a lot of the guys like Elevated Elements, which Macklemore was a part of? Yeah. So, um, in, in the, you know, mid nineties, when we were starting fourth world, uh, Depp's mnemonic, my rap partner in fourth world, his cousin was named Lace Cadence and was also made like an honorary member of fourth world. He was also in the, in the group of us as well. But he lived in Seattle, so like he couldn't be on all the songs and stuff. But he was in the crew, and he was part of Elevated Elements. So 
you know, in maybe grade 10 and stuff like that, we started going out on the weekends and meeting all the Seattle crew, Macklemore being one of them. Um, there was four or five rappers and their crew and then, you know, just a bunch of friends and producers outside of that as well. And Vancouver, we had kind of explored all the, you know, house parties and whatever jams and all age clubs. Cause at this time we couldn't get into nightclubs. Right. So our yeah. hip hop universe was like, you know, community center jams or all age clubs or park jams, you know? So Seattle had a lot more going on. We could go down to West Lake downtown and, and just freestyle outside and like, you know, you get 10 or 20 people in a cypher, all, all sorts of different styles, nationalities of people, walks of life. It was just a lot better training ground for all of us getting better. Some of our friends' moms could freestyle and would hit a cypher, you know, <laughs> that's incredible. That's how, that's how embedded into the culture it was there. Um, so yeah, we, we just had a strong connection with them and, you know, started 20604 and the Naps Collective and NBA and uh, just, and they would come up to Vancouver and to Canada a lot too, you know. So a lot of our first concert and, and first kind of albums that we all pieced together and mixtapes and EPs, like we were all figuring it out together. Gotcha. Yeah, it's a fascinating connection, and it's a connection that I feel like over time has kind of dissipated in a way. And not to say that your relationships with individuals have dissipated, I, I'm not sure the, the extent of that. Um, but just in terms of the communities, I feel like at this point, they're fairly distinct. Um, I don't focus a lot of kind of effort into what's currently going on in kind of the modern day uh, Vancouver hip hop scene. Um, I'm, I'm mostly focused on kind of the, the history aspect of it. Um, so focusing on years, say 1980 to 2005 or so, but even by 2005, I, I see that those communities become a little bit more separated again. Um, why I, do you I feel think like, that is? You know, Vancouver, Vancouver and Seattle have never had as strong as a connection as kind of we we had or have with our seattle crew out there yeah. you know there hasn't been other two other big collectives of, of people from seattle and vancouver that have united and kept it going for a long time and and we're all you know we're all i love those peeps like I, I got so much love for them and we're all still in touch and my my gems album the whole thing was recorded by danny wormwood who was in clockwork and seattle and has the fug from seattle on it and you know so we're all still tight and still working and stuff like that. But I think a huge, huge difference in everything was 9-11, to be honest. And I, I bring that up in the book. Before 9-11, we literally went to Seattle sometimes and they wouldn't even look at our passports. Yeah. They would just go, what are you doing? You go, oh, just going for the weekend to shop. And they'd go, cool, have fun. Just go. Yeah. And, and we could get to Seattle in two hours, two and a half hours. We'd be downtown Seattle from downtown Vancouver. It was amazing. Then the borders got crazy and was backed up. And it's like, you know, they're just making things slower. And it was just a lot, especially for the Americans. It was still cool for us. It was okay. It just took longer. But it really slowed down our American friends coming up here. Because it just became like a lot more stressful, a lot harder to get through. They were turning a lot of people away. And yeah, that, that really slowed down the workflow and the work connection. Yeah. It's so crazy how an event like that. Yeah. yeah. It, it's crazy how an event like that can end up having those ripple effects to, to places in 
ideas and connections, cultures that you wouldn't even think about, right? So people think about 9-11, they think about the war implications, they think about the economic um, influences that that it had. Um, they're not going to think about how it affected the local hip hop scenes between Seattle and Vancouver, right? Like that's just not even a, a, a no, for sure. Know, and when people see, an like, you know, when when people see like um, regulations changed and and immigration laws and stuff like that, you know, they're like a lot of them are thinking people in the Middle East or in Asia, but they're not thinking about like a DJ or a rapper trying to get a work visa to tour through the states and how yeah. much harder that just became for all artists to even go to America you know and things like yeah. that so yeah or they think of it in terms crossover. yeah or they think of it in terms of like economic like trade uh trade routes and um different yeah different commodity exchanges that are happening between canada and the u.s right um that's what they're going to end up focusing on in most cases but not really the the real kind of lived experiences that that different people end up focusing and and that's that's even to say that most people i think kind of understand that airport security, border security changed after 9-11. I think most people kind of understand that, but they don't really make that link. At least I didn't make that link um, to see how it would have affected other other aspects of of different things that I care about. Um, But but I think it it, it does in a lot of ways. And I think there's another community as well. And I I know we were focusing on Seattle, but um, in the book, we've talked about Project Bloat already, but um, I think the the California connection, the Southern California, LA, um, that whole kind of scene, I think that's a, a huge kind of has a huge role within the Vancouver scene, right? We can talk about people like Mocha Only and Prevail that ended up going down to San Diego and made a lot of connections there and lived there um, to the people that they ended up bringing back, like Delta Funky Homo Sapien and your whole like Oakland um, Bay Area hieroglyphics crew, um, people like Abstract Rude and whatnot from Freestyle Fellowship and your um, kind of Project Blowed kind of movement. Um that's a that's a really important scene as well and yeah i think after the 2000s probably after 9-11 a lot of that stuff ends up kind of changing um yeah. it's it, it's really interesting yeah it, it, it really did it's true and there's such a strong connection like also even the mixtapes that we would get in canada the first yeah. ones that would trickle up to the west coast would be coming from washington or from oregon and california yep yeah, 100%. And Prez, Prez and Mocha and like some of our first rappers moving to Cali or exploring and bringing all these different rappers back and everything. It was a huge blueprint for, for West, West Coast rap of Canada. Yeah. What's interesting is that the, the world in the 80s was a different world than what existed after 9-11. Um, and not just because of 9-11 either, right? So things like, for example, a lot of the kind of early innovators in different Canadian communities that I talked to, Vancouver included, a lot of the the very first kind of introductions to hip hop culture would be because people would be traveling to the states and bringing back different yeah radio mixtapes of uh, radio shows that they would see in uh, New York, um, just like um, Mr. Magic shows yeah. or, or what have you, or they'll end up bringing back like um, a two short tape. I've I've heard that story countless times from people in Vancouver. They'll end up going down to the yeah. Bay Area and end up bringing back a two short tape and bringing that back and then introducing that tape and dubbing it to their friends. Um, 
and then that's how a lot of people within the community end up exploring that um, that culture and get introduced to the the culture of hip hop. Um, in Halifax, you have Eric Melbranch. Um, he ended up going down to New York and ended up bringing back a lot of radio tapes, and um, they would end up being dubbed the the Melbranch tapes. And that's written about in like Michael McGuire's thesis on the history of Halifax hip hop. He notes the importance of those Melbranch tapes. Um, that's a part. That's the aspect of the world that just changed drastically as time ended up going on. That that doesn't really exist anymore, right? We have the internet. People experience music in different ways. Um, I feel like if 9-11 happened kind of at the turn of that, because there was after 9-11, you really start to see a, a more reliance on on the internet. Um, and I'm not saying that it was because of 9-11. I don't think that's the case. But but naturally, the world was moving in a way that just kind of aligned at 9-11 being this turning point and so many things drastically change because of 9-11 that you end up getting these kind of this weird before and after effect of of the communities um it's just i don't know there's there's a lot to unravel there and i th- this is this is a yeah. new talking point to me i haven't really thought about this prior but um but there's there's a lot to go over here no, for sure. I, I think that globally, that was a huge changing point in in kind of music or in a lot of relationships and obviously yeah. in foreign policies. But how do those foreign policies and immigration policies relate to music and and international relationships? I've never heard anyone really talk about that from, from any country. And I'm sure there's worse ones than Canada and the States. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm sure there's a good paper in there somewhere and I'm not sure if I'm not sure if that paper's already been written. Um but, but yeah, it's it's a fascinating fascinating subject. Yeah. I mean after that, you know, it was I I myself got a work visa to move to LA like about a year after that and um it was a tough tough process that cost, you know, over like 10 grand, 5 or 10 grand and like it it wasn't easy. You know, and I knew that a lot of people weren't going to go through that same thing. And then the same way around, like it started becoming like people in the States had to have no criminal records and then get their own work visas to be touring up in Canada. And it just, it really made things a lot more complex. Gotcha. Um, kind of to bring it back to the the topic of the book, what do you want people to, to take away from, from this experience of reading the the book itself what do you what do you want people to take away from it i guess an uh a, a, an eye into my journeys you know and kind of the things that i've felt and i've learned and i've seen i chose not to have kind of like a summary at the end of the book because you know i, I plan to write a lot more and I'm, I'm still going with the journey um but you know like i said some chapters don't necessarily have a lesson but then some chapters have multiple lessons and and things that you can get out of it. So I think different people will gravitate towards different chapters for like what's their favorite or what relates to them and stuff like that. Yeah. But I'm just trying to give people a honest eye into yeah, some of my favorite journeys and and, and tours and, and travels and people. I think one of the things that we didn't really touch on is just the appreciation for the world and how diverse and exploratory the world really is. Um, that's something that I, I definitely ended up touching on in while I was reading the book and just in my notes that I was that I was writing as I read. Um, I, I'm not one to to really read a lot of travel um, publications. I, I I don't 
really pay attention to travel blogs or anything of that nature. Um, I've seen things like planet earth and I'm often kind of amazed by just the beauty of the world in different areas. Um, oftentimes I'll watch those documentaries and I'll, I'll wonder like, how the hell is that on earth? Like, um, it looks like a foreign planet, right? Um, the, the world has so many kind of cool and creative ideas and landscapes and kind of these beautiful pieces of poetry scattered throughout. Um, having a book like this that really takes you on this kind of world cruise, right? It, it takes you on this, this trip around the world. I think it, it highlights just the, the expansive nature of earth, um, the different cultures that we have and just how beautiful everything is. Um, I think that's an element that, right. that we can't really leave out of, of this conversation is just how beautiful the, the world really is. Um, and again, I, I feel like, because you ended up focusing on these kind of positive aspects, I feel like elements like that really end up kind of highlighting itself. Um, but yeah, there, there's a lot to take away from here. I think if you're if you're a fan of yourself, if you're a fan of emotions and you're a fan of your music, let it be fourth world or your solo career or what have you, um, I think there's there's something to to get out of this. Obviously, just following your career. Um, I think if you're a fan of Canadian hip hop or Vancouver hip hop specifically, maybe you're a part of that community. I feel like this is going to end up being relevant. Um, I feel like if you're a fan of, yeah, just kind of, you mentioned it earlier, but just kind of musical journeys and that's what you want to, that's the type of material that you like to read. Um, you like to read tour books and that sort of thing. Then by all means, this is, this is a great kind of addition to that collection. Um, and I think if you are just coming from a completely outsider's perspective, not really tuned into the hip hop community at all or the music community at all, I feel like you can walk away from this thinking, wow, there's, um, there's a lot of beauty in this world and this book makes me want to explore new places. I at the very least definitely wanted to, um, as I was reading through, I wanted to go to Southeast Asia. Um, I took your advice and it's like, if you ever get a chance to go, go. And I, I definitely will be doing so if I get a chance to, um, oh, there's there, yeah, there's, there's many things that you can walk away from. And I think if you're kind of in my position, being a historian of this type of material and wanting to kind of learn, I feel like there's a, whole, a lot of little gems, most of which we've kind of touched on, um, kind of scattered throughout here that you can really end up picking apart and piecing together. Um, there's a lot of detail just in terms of names, um, projects that were going on, relationships that were formed at certain times, um, really kind of specific to the Vancouver underground hip hop community during the, the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, characters like Oz 12, for example, are mentioned here a few times, which is fascinating because that's a character one that I've interviewed, but also, um, that I just find innately interesting that he is a part of QC, uh, Q continuum and, uh, kind of, an invaluable member of that community, but at the same time, not someone that you really see talked about a whole lot. So to be able to get more detail on them, I found was fascinating. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think this book kind of exists for everyone in, in some way or another. People are obviously going to enjoy it more uh, than some other people, um, or maybe some other groups of people are going to enjoy it more than, than other groups. Um, but nevertheless, I feel like this is a, is a, is a really great piece of work, and I, I'm glad that you ended up putting it out. I know it's not finished as of yet. I'm looking forward to picking up the final kind of copy that, that comes to shelves um, and being able to see what changes were made. But um, but thank you for letting me read this. Thank you for coming on the show and talking to me about it, and thank you for writing it. Um, I, I can't say that enough. I, I, I really... 
I really thank you for writing it, and I wish that more people within this community would end up taking kind of the same pledge to themselves in order to, to document some of this work for, for themselves and for the community at large. Uh, I feel like this work is important, and like I said, I, I, I thank you for writing it. Oh, that's awesome, man. Thank you a lot, and, and I'm great that you enjoyed it. And, and yeah, man, those are, you know, some of the reasons why I wrote it, too, you know. I... If I can share any journeys that inspired you to want to go to those places, you know, or, or to have your own journey of any type, you know, as a musician or just traveling or anything, then then that's amazing for me, you know. You're one of the first people who's seen kind of the uh the, the rough draft that you got to check out. So Yeah. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that you checked it out and, and that you're feeling it. 